Why don't we keep praying? Holy Spirit, there is no one who leads worship of Jesus like you do. Thanks for that. Thanks for the instruments you've already used this morning. I'm personally grateful for the way you worked in Scott's heart to pick songs that couldn't have been any better if we'd actually had time this week to talk about them. Another crazy week. Diving into this portion, you allowed so many voices to speak into me. Just such a wide array of voices. Folks are here, and they want to hear from you. So Holy Spirit, would you shut me up and speak through me? Amen. All right. Uh, Before we jump into the study of the Bible's book of Luke, there is something I want to mention about the Bible in general. And you may have heard this, but this is crucial. The Bible has prescriptive stories and lessons, and it has descriptive stories and lessons. There are normative ones, and there are narrative ones. The prescriptive or normative ones tend to be kind of specific, instructional, and in one way or another they say this is what you should do or must do or don't ever do this as a result of what you've heard in this lesson. Now something that is descriptive or narrative describes something but does not automatically say now you do this or don't do that. In today's study in Luke, we hit two amazing stories, and I believe both are primarily descriptive narrative, at least way more than prescriptive normative. Great confusion has come throughout history as people have tried turning stories like them into some kind of formula. We're a body of people, not just here but far beyond this, that love our formulas. And I want you to try to keep that in mind as we turn to Luke chapter 8. And we pick it up in verse 40. And while you're turning there, I want to do a quick review. Over the past few chapters, we've seen official opposition to Jesus growing intense. The Jewish leaders were very upset with him. They were really angry about what he was teaching, and they were especially angry about how popular he was among the people in general. Many liked the way he stood up to the Jewish religious elites. Many held had really, really hoped he would lead a rebellion against the Romans who had ruled against them for so long. And many followed him because they kept hearing and they kept seeing stories of healings and other miracles. They heard and they saw Jesus' power over demons and weather and diseases and even death, which would explain why when he got back to his northern ministry base of Capernaum, 
the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Now, the word Luke used for crowds meant hundreds, could have meant thousands, could have even meant tens of thousands of people. I suspect it was on the high end of that here, considering the way news about Jesus was spreading like crazy. So, the crowds waited for Jesus as he and his core 12 disciples traveled across the Sea of Galilee and back. There were people waiting with all kinds of problems and pains and even paralysis. Each had his or her urgency to get to Jesus. There would have been commotion, if not chaos, as they waited. But once Jesus was on land, Luke's focus shifted from the many to the one. And that's not working. There. There came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Now, I could not find a picture that really captured it, but just getting to Jesus would have been really hard, even for a local leader who would have found it easier to kind of get through the crowds than the average person would have. And in spite of the mob, Jairus was even able to make space to drop to Jesus' feet. And that is a graphic picture of just how desperate Jairus was. And to see that, we need to back up a little bit in the story. The Pharisees were already enraged enough to have called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. Now, Jairus, remember, was a ruler of the synagogue. Synagogues were connected to a national system led by the scribes and the Pharisees, and their feelings about Jesus would have been communicated to all synagogue leaders. Now, we don't know how Jairus felt about that, but we do know there was something in his life that mattered far more than their expectations or his reputation. And throwing himself at Jesus' feet and, and pleading with him would have been at least professionally inappropriate and extremely humbling, and it likely would have cost him his job. But apparently that didn't matter anymore. Didn't matter anywhere near as much as the fact that, as Luke reported, he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age. And she was dying. Now, in that culture, 12 was on the verge of womanhood. I mean, like the big step in life. And rather than dreaming about her life, she was facing death. And she was Jairus' only daughter. Now, by that point in his ministry, Jesus had done many miracles in Galilee. Jairus obviously would have been aware of that. He likely witnessed some. And so he waited with this massive crowd of people, anxiously wondering when Jesus would come back from his trip across the sea. 
And then Jairus fought his way to the front and collapsed into a position of humble desperation, just daring to hope. And when he did, out of that entire mob of people, Jesus turned his attention squarely on him, which means he looked past hundreds, if not thousands of needs to focus just on one. Now, as awesome as that is, if you're Jairus, What would it have been like if you were one of the others? There were between one and three million people in Israel at that time. So while Jesus did some extraordinary miracles, amazing, countless miracles of healing over the course of three years, he also left a lot of people unhealed at least in the physical sense. Now, you can wrestle with that as we turn the spotlight back on Jairus, as Jesus began making his way through the crowds with him. We don't know how far they got, but Luke abruptly shifted the spotlight from the two of them to a third person. <laughs> a woman who had had a discharge of blood. Now, there are children here, so I'll just say it was some form of that kind of bleeding for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, really easy to make a political comment there, she couldn't be healed by anyone. And she came up behind him, and she touched the fringe of his garment. Now, in an instant, Jesus turned his focus from Jairus and put it directly on her. And I just asked what it would have been like to have been Jairus and to have Jesus' undivided attention. Some of you know what it's like to feel like Jesus is right there with you. And then to feel like he slipped away. Now, as one within the tri-one God, the Trinity, Jesus never does slip away, but it sure can feel like it sometimes. Or maybe it's just me. Another part of this that bothers me has to do with the whole WWJD movement from the late 90s, as much as I appreciate the question, it often leaves me really frustrated because I find myself in situations where I don't know what Jesus would do. And even if I did know, I couldn't do it. All these people reaching for Jesus, screaming for his attention. I often look at my email inbox or Facebook message requests, and I don't know who to start with. And then, man, I don't know about you, but there are just interruptions. I'm in a crucial but painful process of trying to get control of my calendar. 
This week I realized it isn't normally my calendar that causes me stress. It's all the things that come along that aren't in my calendar. Some are fairly easy to know what to do with, but I don't know what Jesus would do with many of the others. And in the year 2016, thanks to all our devices, I face more interruptions and distractions than ever. And then I see Jesus with a distraught dad, with a dying daughter, and he's interrupted. And not only that, he only addressed one interruption. Even though, as Peter mentioned, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Now, surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of people, including Jairus, Jesus focused on one. Now, as awesome as that is, if you're her, what's it like if you're Jairus? That's only one of a number of questions I have as the attention shifted to her. And to give you a heads up, I came up with way more questions than answers this week. As hard as it is to understand how Jairus was able to get to Jesus, how in the world was she? A couple of weeks ago, we saw his own mother couldn't get to him. And this woman was known to have endured 12 years of constant bleeding. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I'm pretty sure that would have left her pretty weak. And we read she had spent every penny she had on doctors, so she probably didn't have much money for food. Now, the fact that she had been through the entire medical system for so long may explain why a personal problem was known so publicly. But I don't know how a frail, weak woman would have been able to make her way through the crowds, and that's just physically There was way more going on culturally and even religiously. That kind of bleeding had left her ceremonially unclean. And and, and that way for 12 years, among other things, that meant she could not go to the synagogue or take part in any corporate worship, which was way more serious than our culture can comprehend. And being labeled unclean meant people avoided her as well as anything she ever touched. And she would have known how unwanted she was, especially in crowds. But in her desperation, she apparently didn't care anymore. And she made her way through the crowds to Jesus. And just maybe they kind of angrily cleared a path for someone like her. However it happened, I believe she demonstrated more faith in two seemingly simple movements than I can find words to describe. And I cannot imagine how the people and how the religious leaders reacted when she came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. Now, Luke wrote his report about 30 years after the actual events. That means he had decades for all his interviews and all his research. And I wonder what was going on inside of Dr. Luke, Dr. Luke, as he wrote immediately. That was quite literal in the original word. 
the bleeding stopped. Now, some people question how such an intimate detail could be known. Well, the opening four lines of this report, Luke 1, 1 through 4, shows how meticulously Dr. Luke worked before he wrote any of this. In the midst of such a cultural and religious stigma, any report that the bleeding stopped would have been checked thoroughly. And and I'm convinced that Luke would not have written anything he was not convinced of. There was just way too much on the line. And I believe if Luke reported the bleeding stopped, it stopped. Now, as far as immediately goes, while I am very much a male, I talked to as many ladies in as much detail as I dared, and I learned that when it comes to that kind of bleeding, after 12 years, most females would know pretty much exactly when it stopped. And then Jesus asked something that seemed very peculiar, especially to his disciples. Who touched me? Now, the same original word for touch appeared four times in just these few lines. It had several ways of being used. It was the word John used to describe how Mary Magdalene held on to Jesus when she saw him after the resurrection. And it seems to me that is how this woman touched, held the fringe of Jesus' robe. And Jesus' question was more fully, more literally like, who is touching? Who is clinging to me? Now, why would he have asked who? Time after time, Luke showed his conviction, Jesus is God. And time after time, Luke showed how Jesus knew things only God could have known. So I don't believe Jesus was saying, okay, help me identify which one of these people bumped me. I believe he knew who it was and why she had done it. And he could have simply let her slip away, healed physically. But it seems he had some special things to teach by showing what was going on, especially about emotional, spiritual, and even social healing. Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and they're pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive power has gone out from me. Now, that's not saying if you could have somehow hooked a meter to Jesus, you would have seen his power level kind of go down. A more literal translation would be, I intensely felt power flowing. From me. And to me, that shows how fully Jesus experiences it when supernatural power is extended to others and how personally he feels the creative or the healing power that is part of him as part of the Trinity. Now, my spiritual eyes were just opening back in 1990 when Bette Midler sang, God is watching us from a distance. 
Even in my spiritual infancy, I knew there was something really wrong about that. This line from Jesus shows me how personal, how involved, and how engaged he can be. And he can be with any and all individuals at the exact same time. He's just giving us a picture here of how he is with each and all by focusing on the one. And I also believe Jesus drew so much attention to this kind of touching because he wanted to illustrate the difference between following him casually and really following, between reaching out to him for what you think you really want and something even deeper. See, I believe Jesus was saying, do you see how many people are fighting to get near me? How many are trying to get me to do things for them? I want you to see someone who did not fully understand it, but reached for me for more than just physical healing and held on with all her heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now look carefully at this next line. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and she fell to her knees in front of him. Focus on the words, could not stay hidden. I believe that was about more than physical hiding and healing. I believe it was about admitting emotional, mental, spiritual, and even relational pain that had come from the physical pain. And in order to find that kind of healing, she needed to step out of hiding to have the Holy Spirit confront her with the depths of her pain and to begin to admit how much it hurt. And don't miss where she dared to turn with all that pain and how he reacted when she took this enormous risk. Jesus said to her, daughter. Now, I originally wrote I cannot imagine what that sounded like and what it meant to her. Then I realized I have to ask the Holy Spirit to help me hear it for myself. Often to keep hearing Him call me son and to hear it in God's voice, not my dad's. Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And he spoke of more than just physical healing. It was more fully, you are now whole. You are now complete. In her case, that included physical healing, but it meant so much more. I mean, she likely did get sick again at some point, right? Probably not the same problem, but sick just the same. Even if not, we can be certain she died. <laughs> See, people often forget. Whoop. Any physical healing Jesus did or does was or is only temporary. Here between Eden and heaven, life itself is a terminal condition. Jesus spoke into that reality when he said, Daughter, faith in me has made you whole. 
You are now complete. Your eternity with God is now taken care of. Go in peace. Oh, Jesus wanted her to hear that. And he wanted everyone around to hear it about her. Now, while all that was going on, Jairus was waiting. We know he had been waiting by the lake for some time. Then it would have taken a while to get to Jesus. Then it would have taken a while to get anywhere with Jesus in that mob. And then they were held up in this scene. And I suspect Jairus' anxiety and agony about his dying daughter was higher than ever. And then, while Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Now, part of the challenge with stories like this is if you've read or heard it before, consciously or subconsciously, you think, she's going to be okay. It can be easy to not think about what it was like for Jairus in that moment. Would you try to? I mean, would you blame him for being tempted to think things like, Jesus, why did you take so long out on the lake? Jesus, if this woman hadn't stopped us, my little girl might have had a chance. <laughs> this is what I get for daring to hope. Now, Luke didn't mention Jairus saying anything. All I can imagine is the kind of look he had on his face. And whatever that look was, I suspect it changed drastically when Jesus interrupted the messenger and told Jairus, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Now, the first part of that would not have sounded anywhere near as harsh or insensitive as it can in English. The phrase, do not fear, was not like, come on, man, suck it up. It was a firm but gentle and deeply loving call to trust. One commentary said the phrase appears when God asks us to take a risk, to trust even when things look very bad or don't seem to make sense. Being told to not fear there qualifies for not making sense. So does being told, only believe. Now, as insensitive and or unrealistic as that phrase appears in most English Bibles, it was more like Jesus tenderly saying, keep holding on to the faith that brought you this far with me. Now, the little word and in this verse has caused great confusion throughout the centuries. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Now, some people think the and means her healing was tied to his believing. Believe, and she will be well. As in, once you believe or once you believe enough, she'll be healed. So you better believe. 
Now, that's what happens when something that is descriptive or narrative is forced into something prescriptive or normative. If you don't do X, God won't do Y. The word for and appears a couple thousand times in the New Testament. It means many different things. In this case, at least in my mind, it would have helped the translation if it weren't used. And the end of the verse was broken into two sentences, kind of like, keep believing. She will be well. Although that, at this point in the story, still seems nuts. And that kind of faith is only possible through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As explained last week, I believe this scene illustrates the reality of both the natural and the supernatural. While Jairus was trying to come to grips with something natural, there was also some crucial things going on supernaturally, things only the Holy Spirit does. And I've come to believe Jesus was telling Jairus, this must seem horrible. And can't make any sense to you. But the Holy Spirit can help you cling to even an atom of faith in me. You'll see something that will blow you away. And they pressed their way through the crowd toward his home where his daughter was. And as they got closer, they would have heard the weeping and the wailing that Luke describes here. Now, Jesus only let five people follow him inside, Peter, John, James, and the father and the mother. Now, I don't think anyone could have expected what Jesus spoke into the grief and the wailing. He said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Understandably, many versions of the Bible say that was met by laughter. The word meant to mock someone for what was considered a ridiculous thing to say or do. Almost all English versions include an extremely tender detail in response to the ridicule. Jesus took her by the hand. Now, being touched by that ceremonially unclean woman was disgusting in that culture. Touching a corpse was way beyond that. Jews who saw, heard, or read that part would have shivered if not vomited. And I cannot imagine how silent the whole house would have become when, taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. Now, the word for child was so tender, even intimate. Not the word I expected to see there. It is so intimate, in fact, this word, when it is used to describe people of the same gender in other places in the Bible, some people use it to argue for same gender unions. And that underlines why we need to be so extremely careful with some words in the Bible and study how they fit into the whole truth of the Bible. Jesus obviously used the word, but he used it in a completely non-sexual way. But it was so intimate. 
And it makes me so sad because many in our culture have forgotten relational or emotional intimacy does not have to include sexual unity. What Jesus said overflowed with tenderness and gentleness and intimacy. And maybe it's what you need to hear today. Child, arise. I don't know what from in your world, but maybe that's what you need to hear. And Dr. Luke recorded what happened next. Her spirit returned. I I particularly appreciate Dr. Luke's choice of words, how he took what could have been described in purely natural terms and gave a supernatural explanation. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And then Luke's attention switched back to something natural. Jesus directed that something should be given to her to eat. I suspect part of the reason Jesus did that was to show She was very much alive again. And beyond that, I don't know many mothers who wouldn't love to hear something like it in this kind of setting. Honey, your daughter's hungry. Would you like to get her something? This extraordinary blend of power and playful tenderness from Jesus. Now, Luke continued, her parents were amazed There isn't a big enough word for how they really felt. But Jesus insisted that they not tell anyone what happened. I really wrestled with that. Can you imagine any parent not talking about something like that? I've come to believe Jesus was saying, don't feel like you've got to go tell anybody about this right now. It'll get around. You'll have your time to tell people for now. Just stay here. Just drink this in. Feed your little girl. Hold your little girl. Celebrate with your little girl. Thank God. Worship. There will be time for telling people later. Now, even though I said I believe these two stories are mostly descriptive narrative, there are things we can and even should take away from them. I believe there always are, although they can be hard to find. And and I'm just going to wrap up with a few that struck me in the midst of all kinds of amazing dialogues about this through the week. Uh, For one, do I do this or don't I? Yeah, I do. Finding freedom to ask some of your deepest questions can be just as important as knowing answers. I'm looking out and I'm seeing the faces of a bunch of people that are really good at at helping people find freedom to ask questions. I believe many answers don't come without a safe place to really wrestle with questions. And let me share one of the questions that nagged me through this week. Do I believe these stories? I finally admitted I do. But as I thought about it, something snuck into my thoughts. And even though I believe it's true, I hate it. 
See, I realize the Bible is full of stories like these. Human history has even more stories like these. So here's the thought that hit me. When my faith in God wobbles, it isn't normally because he hasn't done enough to get me to trust him. History overflows with things he's done. So when my faith in God wobbles, it's normally because I've begun to think he hasn't done enough for me. Or he hasn't done one particular thing for me. And that makes me hesitate to trust him. Boy, I feel really alone saying something like that. Now, another thought from these stories, I believe God can heal anyone of anything. But we need to be very careful with any teaching that takes stories like these and turns them into something that guarantees healing for anyone and everyone if they just find and follow the right formula. While physical healing may come on this side of Eden, the only place anyone will find complete and permanent healing is after natural death. In these stories, Jesus' deeper miracles were supernatural. They had to do with eternal wholeness, which would help explain people. Do you know some? People with horrific illness terrible disabilities will found profound peace. And man, that is as amazing as any physical healing. God repeatedly offers one promise in the midst of pain, and that is to be with us. But we need to be very careful, very wise and very tender with that because it can actually cause extra anguish for some people at certain places in the journey. And that's what happened this week if you followed this at all by social media. There are people journeying. Come on, please. Whoa. Come on. Some people at certain places in the journey find it anything but comforting to be told the one they're angriest with is the one closest to them. Can I say that out loud? No one can make, oh, there's supposed to be a can in there, rats, can make them willing to confront the depths of their pain and to begin to admit how much they hurt, even to tell God how angry they are with Him. Taking people to and through those things is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But Some people at certain places in the journey find it anything but comforting to be told the one they're angriest with is the one closest to them. (laughs) Now, my final thought, a couple of thoughts, come from the contrast of the main figures in these stories, and I look out at a very diverse group of people. There's a man, there's a woman, there's a girl. There's wealth, there's poverty. There's respect, there's rejection. There's one accustomed to being honored, one used to being mocked or avoided. One leads a place of worship. One isn't even allowed in a place of worship. And one's part in the story was simply to get sick and lay there helplessly. That pretty much covers the full gamut of 
humanity. One thing they had in common was, and one thing we have in common is, a confrontation with the reality that here between Eden and heaven in this world, everything and everybody in it is dying. And if the story ended there, in the face of it, they shared and we share a confrontation with the one who made one of the most controversial and divisive promises ever. And I'm going to close with it from one of the more modern versions of the Bible, and then we'll have a chance to consider it and respond to it as the music team returns to lead us through some profound truth. And this is it. This is how much God loved the world. He gave His Son, His one and only Son. And this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. By believing in Him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. And Father, I, I, boy, I keep flashing back to last week's message the opposition and the enemy, and I've, I've felt them. I stepped down from here feeling like this truth has been jumbled when in my head it was so clear. The Holy Spirit, you're the clarifier. You're the one that takes information and brings transformation through revelation and illumination. Would you do that, especially because of my imperfections? We still have some great truth to see, and we get to sing it, which makes it come alive in ways it often doesn't just looking at it or speaking it. So, Holy Spirit, please continue to teach about the one these two met and came to know. Amen.